any teacher who's out there, maybe you're feeling, maybe you do have a little bit of margin in you to think about something in 2024. Think about some sort of creative endeavor that is going to put you in reflective spaces. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Optimalist, a podcast where we have set out to explore the optimal way to educate in the age of AI. If you're new here, I'm Sarah Candela, your host through this exploration of the elements of human flourishing. Well, today brings you another sort of long time coming kind of chat. I joked around with Tim Cavey before we recorded about how I thought of us having sort of come of podcasting age in the same era. We have a lot of the same industry references and beats and connections. So it creates kind of like this vortex for me when I run into him in education Twitter. It's like, ah, two of my worlds are colliding. So it's kind of cool. And there aren't a lot of people I can say that about. A lot of our listeners will likely know who he is. But for those who don't, Tim Cavey is a vice principal, technology teacher, and YouTuber in Vancouver, Canada. And on this episode, we talked about the changes that teaching has to go through with AI and technology in general, and the struggle it can be with teachers feeling like they don't have the bandwidth to use new tools. How do we get past this very busy moment in our time? We also talk about the great free PD that is found online just by connecting with others, and how teachers can start with reflecting on their work by using blogging or podcasting. All this and more on today's Optimalist. So I am in my 23rd year of teaching this year. So I entered the profession in 2001. It's now 2023, soon to be 2024. I've been at it for quite some time. When I reflect back on the journey, Sarah, I really look at... 2017 or so as a pivotal moment. So I entered at that time, I entered a master's in educational leadership program, and it really did so much in terms of reawakening my fire for education. I went into it to learn. I went into it for the credential. I went into it because I was interested in leadership and all of those things are great and still true, but it did so much for me in terms of lighting my fire. And in that first year of learning, I got plugged into a spiral of inquiry. So a very inquiry-based format of professional learning alongside other classes and instruction. And so along that journey, I discovered learning targets. I discovered a book called Leaders of Their Own Learning by Ron Berger and Mm. a few others at Expeditionary Learning. And my mind was, and I almost forgot to mention, I read Mindset by Carol Dweck, along with a number of other course books. And wow, Mindset by itself was incredibly transformative. It, It sort of set me on this course of leaning into discomfort, sort of this idea that if I'm comfortable, if I have embraced the labels that I think I wear, and I'm not pushing myself, stretching myself, I'm probably not learning and growing like I should be. Mm-hmm. I always go back to the gym, right? And think about the fitness or the, the physical parallel. When we want to grow, it requires a little bit of strain, a little bit of stress. And so that motivated me from there to, in 2018, start the Teachers on Fire podcast. That led to my thesis. 
that led to the degree and then the administrative position in, in 2020. And from there, it's just been a continuous journey of learning and growth and connection with other educators like you. So I, I really look back to that decision to continue my professional learning in the form of the degree in 2017 as the year everything changed for me. The year everything changed. <laughs> I like that. This comes because I was also just looking through some of your writing last night as well. So some of these things nice. are fresh in my mind, um, as I was telling you earlier. But I don't know if you even can pinpoint like from the start of your teaching career to this day, is there any one one or two major changes you see in the way students approach school or the way they what's the biggest difference that you can see? Easy answer for me. I mean, okay. So one of the obvious ones, Sarah, is technology. You and I mm -hmm. were talking off air yeah. about how that has changed a whole lot. And when I entered the classroom, there was no Wi-Fi. There were no devices of any kind. But I actually want to take it in a different direction and talk about assessment. And okay. if you've looked at some of my work, if you've heard me talk for any length of time, that is a real place of passion. So when I began teaching, let's say for the first 10 to 15 years, the mindset of a typical student was very much, how can I win in this system? How can I earn the most points? How can I get the highest grade? I would like to think that now within the standards-based grading system, the, the proficiency scale that I operate in, that now the conversation is starting to shift among students. And that's where it really gets exciting. Because I don't give out any marks at, or, pardon me, any numbers or letter grades ever mm. at any point in the school year, I don't have students asking me, is this for marks? I don't have students saying to me, as one did once, if you're not going to grade this, what was the point of me doing this? Yeah. Right. Isn't that a telling question? Isn't mm -hmm. that, doesn't that say a lot about the student's understanding of what education is? We've all heard it hundreds of times, right? Hundreds of <laughs> times. So, so I think now, thankfully, at least in my jurisdiction, I know every state, province, a little different, but in my jurisdiction, we are living within this standards based paradigm of proficiency that is now helping students think about moving from a developing level of proficiency to fully proficient to possibly extending, but it's no longer playing a game and it's no longer simply trying to please the teacher or what does the teacher want? That's an entirely different game. I'm not really interested in that game. I'm mm -hmm. interested in learning. So I think if you're looking for a pivotal paradigm shift, that would be it. I love that. And that goes so uh, perfectly along with your inquiry-based approach as well, right? I'm assuming they go hand in hand. To a large extent, to a yeah. large extent. I think, I, so in my practice, I teach 35%. I'm in the classroom 35% of my time right now. The other 65 is in my admin role. But in my instruction, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm not doing a lot of inquiry. I'm doing very much directed student learning around different design challenges. Now within design challenges, there's a lot of freedom and autonomy and independence and, and following their own passions. And there's some room, but they are very much directed activities. So I get excited about inquiry. I think my biggest challenge sometimes is if I'm only seeing 
a class for 45 minutes a week, that has to be a pretty structured time to deliver full value. Mm -hmm. And so there's not as much flexibility as if I'm seeing that student for five hours a week. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And so if we're kind of moving into thinking about um, about how any of this is being affected and changed, if at all, by the way we have to adapt to artificial intelligence. This is my leap, my giant leap into just talking to Do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to leave in. I'm so eager to know, like from someone from your, and I'm sure the people listening to this are as well, someone in your position with the kind of role that you and an environment that you are working in that you just explained to us. How how much of a shift have you had to make in in your practice to kind of start to adapt to allowing artificial intelligence to be a part of everyday life? I can give you some practical examples. So mm -hmm. in this term, I work with young people, yeah. little learners, little. Uh, fifth fifth through seventh grades. Mm -hmm. So they're they're not. They're not uh, quite at the same level as our secondary colleagues, but I'm, yeah. I've been helping them find some of the AI tools in Canva, for example. That was some of the most recent things that we did. They are starting to play with other parts of that, the magic write function and, and some of the other uh, aspects I'm not necessarily leading them into. I have had – so here's a fresh conversation from yesterday that I had with a seventh grade teacher she was asking in terms of our report cards, how do you write, how do you frame in a positive way that a student needs to rely less on the AI tools in terms of actually delivering the final product and how to, you know, how that student should be leaning on the AI tool or utilizing it effectively to generate ideas or to edit? or to fine tune, or do you see the distinction I'm trying to make? Mm -hmm. So how, how do you make that comment in a way that is considerably more graceful than simply writing on the report card, Johnny used chat GPT to complete <laughs> two essays and one poem this term, and he needs to stop. You know, how right. do we, how do we frame that? How do we change that conversation a little bit in a, in a very forward and positive way for the learner and for the parent? And what's the language that you're using too, right? That language. Totally, yeah. Totally. And, and Che Cheney mm -hmm. made an awesome post about this yesterday or sometime this week. And I think you know him, but yep. just to the effect that we're all modeling it, we're trying to model it and demonstrate it as teachers. That's the best we can do. And we have to keep a humble posture because we're not going to do this perfectly. And we're going to have students jumping ahead and trying to sort of out, outfox the teacher. <laughs> out with the teacher, <laughs> right? Right. And, and, and it hopefully is pushing us to think long and hard about what is the evidence that we're eliciting from the student? What exactly are we looking for? What does that evidence show about their learning? What is the learning target? It makes us hopefully very, very intentional and laser focused on what it is we're trying to do with the student because we can't just throw out the essay prompts that we did 10, 20 years ago. Right. That, yeah. And that, that's what I read the most about is those frustrations and trying to find that balance, right? Of it's hard not to think, and maybe it's getting a little bit better now that a year has passed in this kind of new world, but it's hard not to feel like, oh my gosh, 10 years of, or 15 years of preparation and work and 
diligence are, <laughs> are kind of completely shifted. But I was recently talking to Matt Miller and we were saying a couple of people, I think, not just him, but we were talking about this idea that, um, you know, just pick any month, like the month of November, the month of December. And in, in some respects, you used to know what November was going to look like as it approached, right. like, Oh, my November, st-, like, I mean, I used to teach English. And so there were months of the year that I associated like in the 11th grade curriculum with certain novels or certain plays. Um, not that I had to, was being told they had to do, be done in that direction, but like I knew what fed, what fed into one thing and what should be paired. I mean, like we all do. So like March looked and felt a certain way, but now if you think about what this November was and what it might be next November, they might be legitimately completely different. Um, totally. That's terrifying to a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Can I add one more piece of value that I think your listeners might appreciate? Yes. So please. something I was reflecting on recently around this whole area of AI, particularly you mentioned teaching English, particularly humanities teachers, English, social studies, other areas. How do we craft learning tasks that still give us authentic evidence of learning? And I settled on three words, Sarah, and they are personalize, localize, and vocalize. So personalize, we've got to integrate I statements in the student writing so that they are connecting personally. They're speaking in the first person in connection with whatever the topic or the content might be. That has to be there more and more. Localize, so try to connect the topic or the task with something in the local community if possible. That's a little harder for Mm -hmm. ChatGPT to replicate, right? And then thirdly, we've got to vocalize the student learning. So whether that is a student reading their poem or their essay or their, their piece, whatever it might be, reading it aloud, sharing about it, engaging with partners, small group discussions, like... Do you see what I'm saying? Like yes. doing stuff, engaging with the learning so that it's not just this 30 essays in the inbox moving on to the next activity on Monday. Like we have to really dig in. It's pushing us to go deeper, I think. It is. And it, and I know that there are, uh, it, it can sometimes, that's part of the challenge, right? It feels like, how do I have, as an as an educator, how do I have time and space to to make everything so much more conversational and ha- you know what I mean? I, it does it yeah. feel like the teacher has to step in and be more involved at every step. And that's what we're trying to figure out too. Like a lot of the conversations I have with people are the variety of ways that they're turning their classrooms into a totally different kind of learning space while also having to think about and be mindful of how does this impact the teacher's time and what's my place in this whole shift. Right. You talked about teachers' time, so uh, let me talk about sustainability. I mean, I think teachers across the profession, everywhere across North America, maybe in other countries, are severely stretched. And Mm -hmm. it's hard to put our fingers on exactly what is going on. COVID was difficult. COVID took a toll on all of us simply as a traumatic episode that seemed never-ending when we were in it. Is that really the fault? Are we asking too much of teachers in other ways? We know that something I keep my eye on is that philosophies like UDL and accessibility and inclusion are as wonderful as they are. They are raising the bar from when we entered the profession 20 years ago so that now it's not enough to just plan 
six or eight great lessons for a day. Now we're saying to the teacher, plan those six or eight lessons, but make sure you are providing on-ramps and Mm -hmm. access for every one of the different 25, 30 learning profiles in your room. I know I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I think, I think that's, that's taking a, a bit of a toll. Uh, so to bring it back to AI, I think a lot of teachers are really interested in engaging the way you and I are right now, but they just lack the bandwidth and the M, like, where do you get the time? Where do you get the extra mental space to sit down, to play with tools, to check out magicschool.ai, to check out EduAid and all of yeah. the, like the explosion of tools is just unreal. So it, there is a sustainability connection and I don't have the answer. <laughs> Well, I thought you were going to have all the answers just written out hoping. for me today, Tim. <laughs> I would love that. Solving. Trust me. That's yeah. the name of this episode. Tim solves all our problems. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Um, so one of the things like, and I mentioned this again to you before we started recording as well, is we are at the Optimist and at Swivel really, really almost obsessed with this idea of what can we do to bring more reflective practice into and into the classroom and then also into because we think of it from adults perspectives too of if we were to make a commitment to more of a reflective practice even in an assessment um from an assessment standpoint you know so many of us don't think that we're really good at at reflection. You know, I think a lot of us still think reflection is jotting down in my journal and, you know, what I did today and reflecting on it, but not really taking that to the next step. Um, So I'm thinking a lot about that these days. And that's where a lot of my reading is and a lot of my conversations are going. So I love just kind of picking the brain of a lot of different people in different roles. You know, how does, especially now when we're thinking about this you know, walking and working alongside AI in this new age that we are going to find ourselves unable to escape. So it's like, where does, where does reflection take place? And, and is it something that you implement as part of, as part of the kind of learning experience that you've now described to us here? Well, what I hear you asking is mm-hmm. how can we encourage and support teachers to add to their reflective practice or add reflective sure. routines? Yeah, so in practice? both ways. And I'm and I guess I'm also mm-hmm. thinking like in what way does it have a place in your school or in your teaching at this moment? And in what ways can we increase that? Like where 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 do you see the benefits of it? I think so first of all, tons of benefits. Yeah. I think the same principle applies to educators that applies to learners. And so let me share an irony that you're probably very aware of. And that is a lot of our schools and teachers are bringing in student self-reflection and student self-assessment mm-hmm. at scale, at scale. So we are being told by our jurisdiction that we can consider this kind of assessment and reflection as a valid piece of data, oh, wow. valid piece of evidence cool. of, of student learning. Like that fits into the triangulation of assessment. And so we're all doing a better job of inviting and soliciting student self-assessment, student self-reflection. We have to do it every report card, for example. We have to I- include student voice. What about teachers? What about educators? I, I come back to the sustainability problem, Sarah, and I think I know. <laughs> so, so my practical answer to you is, and this won't surprise you, and you're so good at this already, but sharing questions and engaging with ideas on a platform like X, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. can be. I wish I could convince more educators of what a low bar or what a low ask that is. It can be as simple as five minutes a day. It does, and, yeah, and mm-hmm. it can be. And, and just answering Sarah Candela and Tim Belmont and so many other great educators just responding to whatever it is that they're putting out there or asking a question mm-hmm. and tagging a couple of people can start to begin a new level of reflective practice. And conversational practice. I mean, it's, totally. there's a conversational aspect to just even that one platform that goes beyond just, oh, you know, I could go follow 10 10 new educators right now who might be putting out a variety of things that are making me think or making me want to take further, but I might just reply to one of your tweets and or one of your prompts or questions thinking for my own, just because I feel like I need to. And then from that, 10 other people respond. And suddenly you've opened up a dialogue about, about anything that could, mm-hmm. that could lead to being sitting here on microphone talking, talking. Um, you never know where it might go. No, yeah. but it doesn't take a lot of time. And it, there's so many people that talk about that, too, that they're in there, just regular classroom teachers trying to tell other people. Um, there's someone I talk to particularly very often who says that teachers in their school are always asking how they get certain opportunities or like, why, like, how did you get sent to that, like this conference or like, you're going to another, like, where did you get that information? Or how did you learn that? And they're like, I don't know how many times I have to tell you, but you got to get on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, this is how I found these things and these people. <laughs> um, but it is funny the resistance there. Uh, and you know, sometimes it's just that if you haven't done it yet, it's one of those things. Like, oh yeah, it doesn't take that much time. I can just do this. It's like finding time to meditate. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And let's give a shout out to the communities on other platforms like Instagram and TikTok. But yeah. what I'm finding about those two. Is And they are great for comedic relief. I mean, <laughs> teachers are posting, you know what yeah. I mean? Like teachers are posting some really, really funny and sometimes some dark humor kinds of content. Yes. It's just it, but it's not as reflective as, no. as Twitter. And Twitter to me is the sweet spot of we're not having to wade through an entire blog post. I think most teachers are too tired for that. Mm-hmm. Don't have it in them if, if they're honest, but. Just the nature, the micro learning. Holly Clark calls it micro learning, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe you're just pulling, maybe you're in the Costco lineup and you just pull out your phone and see what teachers are talking or whatever. You know, it can look different for every person. The best thing is, though, it can. A lot of things that we're reading, though, even we, though we can do them in little bites, they often will lead to a link to guess where this this came from a bigger blog post or this. And so right. we can come back to that later or share it with if it's something you don't want to share 10 tweets with colleagues in an email, but you might want to say, <laughs> but look, here's Tim's blog. He writes every week. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. oftentimes you can find both, both ways um, when, when you do really dive in and commit to that. But yeah. yeah, it's interesting to hear though, just to go back for a quick second. It's interesting to hear about, about the, it seems like pretty good acceptance of reflection as part of assessment. So that's, that's not something I hear people being so enthusiastic about, but I think that probably has to do with where you're teaching and living more than anything. It probably does. Yeah, it probably does. It probably does. And I think a a big fear of teachers, Sarah, is that students will overestimate their learning, but in my experience, they often underestimate their learning. So it's, it's a rich source that we need to tap into. I need, I still need to do more of it. Yeah. I mean, and I think of my own way as I start to try to 
think about how I would, you know, because one of the interesting thing is, is separating actual reflection that moves you forward from just what can become like daydreaming, I guess, because I think I can do that too. Like, I'm gonna, I just read five blogs by so and so, and I'm just gonna, I'm just, or I'm listening to podcasts while I'm driving, and I'm just, my mind is wandering, and I kind of am being reflective. But when I think about you putting the word practice in in front of that or next to it as well, how does it become then something that is routine or in my day or like several times a day? And it's something that, you know, I always make, I keep making comparisons to meditation, but it is when, when it leaves you, you feel the difference, you know? Right. And so like, that's something that I'm like, what is the format of a reflection? What is, what makes it go from just, you know, spending a few minutes thinking about something that you just read or listened to or did um, or experienced to thinking about how you can do something better or what is it like in the future or how did I feel about this or did this make me angry or like, why did it make me like, I feel like it's, there's a structure to it that makes it not just in the individual reflection itself, but also in making it part of what you do and that routine that I think is what the big question that I'm always now I'm always thinking about is how do we get that to be something that is not like, ah, I don't have enough. I don't have enough time to do that. Cause I do think the reason why I bring it up too is that I do think that moving into this, into this new world that we're all kind of getting used to and, and dive or diving into headfirst. I, I think about is this, is reflection going to be the way that we develop higher order thinking skills or even higher order thinking skills in a world where kids have access to every single kind of information that they could possibly, and we have access to it. We all have access to everything and things that can do stuff for us. So what does it mean to be a human, a developing human or a young human in that world? And so we think about what develops us as humans. And that is kind of like reflective practice. I'm making some leaps here for you. No, I'm <laughs> so following in. Good. So I just want to see your reaction to, to this stuff. <laughs> Uh, no, I love it. I, I, in a very, you're talking about a vision of learning very broadly where yeah. reflective practice and reflection, you know, self-reflection is right at the core. If you go back to those three words that I shared about, I was hoping you'd say the that nature, <laughs> the nature of writing tasks mm -hmm. in the age of AI. The first word that I shared was personalize mm -hmm. and those I statements. So that I'm completely in agreement. I think it's not enough just to ask students to define, let's say, different government structures like oligarchy and communism and socialism. And so let's take that lesson now and find ways to personalize it. Mm -hmm. And that that to me gets really interesting. And it's better evidence of understanding and learning. It's going way deeper. So now they're not just parroting a definition. They're actually having to draw connections with their own life. That is so much more interesting. And it's so deeper. Oh, it is. And then, you know, what you're doing is also learning skills that you can take into things that you're passionate about or outside of school. Like, I, I just feel like there's a whole, there's a whole practice there that can be expanded beyond the classroom. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So just wanted to just wanted to plant that out there. Uh, and I keep I'm practicing also how I talk about this stuff. So I feel like every time I bring up reflection, I'm I'm thinking about it in a little bit of a different way. So yeah. Can I throw a yeah. couple last thoughts on that? So we are a seesaw school and I, f I feel convicted like, man, we need to be doing more in terms of just normal, regular 
reflection. So students reflecting in their journals about their learning from the week. Mm-hmm. That should be just a normal routine thing in, mm-hmm. in everything we do. And then on the educator side, I go back to Adam Welcome, who says that every person should have a podcast. <laughs> and I think that that's sort of horrifying for most educators, but you yeah. and I know the power of these conversations and mm-hmm. just getting into this chair and thinking a little bit more intentionally and more deeply and engaging. And so if teachers would start to pick that up, any teacher who's out there, maybe you're feeling, maybe you do have a little bit of margin in you. Yeah. Think about something in 2024. Think about some sort of creative endeavor that is going to put you in reflective spaces. Yes. And you just planted an idea in my mind. I don't know how, but, uh, of okay. the idea, just taking, t- taking what you were saying earlier about, um, how easy it is to spend five or 10 minutes jumping on to a platform online and talking to people you don't even know and you've never met. And exchanging some ideas and reflecting, but if you took that practice and moved it into like, is there a a way we can do something like that? That's just even within our school building, like getting mm. teachers used to, like they don't have to be in person. It could be done on your own time, just like you would respond to someone on any online platform um, or post on any online platform. Is there a way we can also have something like that within a district or a building where it's like? It's a baby step. It's a starting step for people communicating with each other and, and jumping in and inspiring and writing and having conversations when they have time. So we just created something together. <laughs> um, you're, you're, you're talking about things very close to my heart, Sarah. I'm always good. thinking, by the way, as a part-time administrator about what are the best ways to reach people in 2023, right? What are the best ways for educators and school communities to reach out? So I've thought about podcasts i've played with that in the past i've thought about do we do a live stream show that airs on facebook and youtube like there's so and of course uh writing like mini versions of what's out there in the world but it's four years totally school. yeah like, totally, i love yeah. things like that it's like creating mm-hmm. a mini world yeah so a few things as we wind down so where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you or if they are for some reason, someone that listens to this show and doesn't already know you on the internet, <laughs> if that happened, um, where can they find your writing and where can they talk to you? Best place is at teachers on fire. That's going to unlock most of my content. You'll find me on every platform, including YouTube. That's where I'm trying to put more of my energy this year. Yeah. And you mentioned writing as well. Mm-hmm. So that shows up in different places, but teachers on fire.net is probably the easiest way to find my latest blog content. It might be a a cool spot to just quickly give you a couple, a minute or two to just maybe you want to share what inspired Teachers on Fire. You mentioned 2017 as being your year when everything changed. Did that kind of coincide together with that, that the discovery? Um, So I, I wanted to just hear what you had to say about that as well. Well, I think I heard you ask about the the name or the origin story. So there's a couple of different yeah. pieces there. The or the name is kind of fun for me. I started getting more and more into podcasts for probably the last five to ten years before I launched Teachers mm-hmm. on Fire. And a lot of the podcasts that really ignited my imagination were actually in the entrepreneurial space. That and so sense. one of them, one of them was called Entrepreneurs on Fire <laughs> by, by John Lee Dumas. It's still mm-hmm. out there. It's oh, still I know a great that show. podcast. I know him. Yeah. Yeah. 
he's a really cool dude. He's very inspiring. He lives in Puerto Rico today, but he, he was kind of the origin of teachers on fire in the sense that I just eventually listened to so much of him. I thought, okay, I have to do something like this in the teacher space similar. And I honestly looked around. I was like, okay, Tim, come on. You can do better than simply changing one word in his title. (laughs) And, and, you know, entrepreneurs on fire, teachers on fire. I played with so many different variables of teaching and education and ending with the the letters ED. You see a lot of that. So, yeah. Anything Ed, right? And yeah. I just, I kept coming back. And of course, if you want to think strategic branding, you want the same handle on every platform yeah. possible. You want it to be available. That's going to pay dividends down the road. And so I just came back to Teachers on Fire. It coincided with my year two of my master's degree. I built my thesis around educational podcasts and how they are impacting teacher practice. Mm. And the rest, the rest is history. It's been a fun ride. Yeah, because I think now it's associated like it really is a brand. Even if people have not seen are in an avid listener, they know if if they know you anywhere like that, it has become it has become way more than just putting on the audio, I think. Um, And that's impressive. And I just wanted to get a little insight into this, into how that started. But that makes sense. I think I had made that connection to Entrepreneurs on Fire a while ago. Oh, did you? forgot about it. Yeah, because we might, you and I might have similar entry points into the podcasting world or like timeline wise, I think, because sometimes I see you post about things um, regarding podcasting that almost are like a mirror to my past life. Oh, nice. (laughs) So I do think that we probably have a lot of podcasting things in common as far as how we got into it. But um, let us know um, so we can get a little bit more information or insight, I guess, into who you are as a full human walking around on this earth. Is there anything that you have read or listened to or even watching lately that's that's really blowing your mind or that you would recommend to people to check out? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So some things that I've been reading lately, uh, I'll give you a few titles from my Kindle, Sarah. So mm-hmm. I try really hard, by the way, to leave my phone out of the bedroom, which forces Good. me to actually look at my Kindle, which is, I know, very, very difficult. <laughs> So, so some, and I tend to rotate books, but uh, recent titles have included Essential Truths for Teachers by Danny Steele and Todd Whitaker. Real Artists Don't Starve by Jeff Goins. That's a very inspiring book. And Teaching with Love and Logic by Jim Fay and Charles Fay. So I'm getting great value from those three titles on the listening side. This is going to horrify my <laughs> podcast listeners, but most of my listening right now is coming from YouTube. So I really value the shows that appear on podcast form, mm-hmm. in, in podcast form and on YouTube, because that's where I'm doing a lot of my listening. So right now I've been listening to a channel called Think Media. Mm-hmm. Uh, this week I listened to Matt Miller and a, a panel on AI, and I try to tune into my friend Fonz Mendoza at the My EdTech Life mm-hmm. podcast. So I gave you a few there for your for your listeners to think about. Cool. Um, what I do, I have a quick question though. What sure. does because I, I do talk to people about this often too regarding podcasting. What does influence your decision recently to do a lot more consumption on YouTube? Is it certain channels that are only being distributed there or they're better quality there? What do you, what are you finding in your experience? It's 
going to make a lot of sense to you when you think about this. I am trying to build the YouTube channel yes. more more than the podcast. Yeah. In, in this, I'm putting more of my focus on YouTube. So I'm really trying to understand it. Most people think they understand YouTube, but they don't. I agree. In, ter- in terms of actually creating content that matters and gets clicks and gets value. And I'm definitely not there. <laughs> but and it's I'm underutilized, trying. I think. I think. Oh, so oh massively underutilized. So I'm trying to learn what makes sense, what works on YouTube. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to be a student of it mm, explicitly sense, yeah. or directly through YouTube mentors, but also just listening to people like you and other education influencers and, and watching and observing how they use the medium. Yeah, that's cool. Um, because there are like, as you mentioned, a couple of, of brands or channels. I know there are companies that are you know, media brands that really do focus all their energy into YouTube. And that's where people know to find them. But I don't think that the average YouTube listener knows about all of that power. Like they think they think of it and, you know, YouTube fits a certain box of where they go to for certain content. But it's always interesting to me to hear how people are intentionally studying it like you are or using it or listening to it um, because it always comes up and then but yeah, I agree. People don't understand it and it's underutilized. So that's interesting. Are you are you putting your show on YouTube? I have to admit, I they don't are. know. Yeah, no, okay, they're on good. YouTube. They're just we're not recording oh, yeah. the video yet, but they're being right. they're being processed as a as a video, but not really. Um, yeah, so they're there. Um, when I started the Teachers on Fire podcast, sorry to interrupt, I yeah, assumed totally. that the audio only videos, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. the audio only content that I was uploading there would get almost no views or listens. Yeah. But that was not true. Like no. over time, they add up, people find your content there. They do. So for any creator like us, I would say make sure you're getting it on YouTube. Yeah. And they also, especially if you do take, it sometimes takes the effort to think to go back and do this. But if you do, mm-hmm. if any of the people that you are having on as guests have any YouTube presence and you're able to tag them in there, that's not yes. often the case. Um, You know, not everybody has any, it's not like tagging someone on Twitter saying, Hey, guess who my guest was this right. week, where most right. of the people we talk to are on Twitter. But if it if there is a crossover, that makes a big difference as well. You'd be surprised when I look at the YouTube stats, even though it's my this show is such a uh, a baby show right now in terms of timeline, uh, how long we've been around. But if I go and just look it up, the things that people have searched for to wind up listening to a certain episode are wild. I would never I would never think of them <laughs> or they ty- or they're cool. searching for people's names and they come up with a guest. Um, so that's, uh, a, that's another thing, um, which is cool. Well, thanks so much for dropping by this weird, um, virtual studio here today, Tim. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Sarah. This has been a long time coming. I've been watching your work and such a big fan of what you put out on X. So this is an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tim, for sharing a bit of your work and perspective with the Optimalist audience. I especially appreciate the conversation around what it's like working with students at a time when the very nature of how we live and learn and help others every day is changing. Thanks to everyone out there in the audience who has signed up to try out Swivel's new product, Mirror, during its first demo program cycle. Mirror, if you don't know, is Swivel's new AI-powered self-reflection tool that helps students supercharge and regulate their reflective practice. We believe that the high-order skills that we all need in the age of AI 
are going to rely on our level of self-awareness and our ability to better manage our emotions, work habits, choices, relationships, and learning. And we're using AI to help us do that. Basically, the mirror is where we want you to meet your potential self, your best self. There's a link in the show notes today to sign up to be a part of this incredible opportunity, which is the Mirror Demo Program. Basically, we send you a free mirror device to your school and you use it with some light guidance from us over the course of 30 days. And then you tell us what happened. It's that easy. Follow the link in the show notes to sign up now or go to swivel.com for more information. Please consider letting us know what you think by leaving a review or even a rating in Apple Podcasts. And you can reach me on Twitter at scandela9. The hashtag optimalist can be used when posting answers to questions we ask here, especially if you can't find the original post, and I'll be sure to see it. I can also be reached at sarah at swivel.com. You can listen and subscribe to the Optimalist podcast wherever you love listening to great podcasts. New episodes are released every Wednesday and links to all of these resources mentioned are available in the show notes. The Optimalist podcast is brought to you by Swivel. At Swivel, we understand that the biggest challenge in education is the rate of change. Policy revisions, technological advancements accelerated by AI, evolving job markets, and ongoing research constantly identifying new best practices are only some of the factors affecting the rate of change in education. To learn how Swivel can help you be more reflective, engaged, and adaptable, visit swivel.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening to The Optimalist, and I will be back next week with a whole new conversation.